This city of Sodom, this is what we're talking about today, there's just nothing else that just surfaces up than the wrath. God is going to judge sin, and if you are on the wrong side of the fence when it comes, sorry. And as I read that, sometimes I get a bit flippant, just like I did right there, where you just kind of say, look, it's cut and dry. You on the wrong side of the fence, you're going to burn. That's it. And as, as you continue in that, you, you start to expose your heart of, wow, you know what, my, my heart for those folks that are on the other side of the fence is a little bit weak. And I go back and I read it again. And again I see fire and brimstone. I'm going to preach against sin today. Because that's what seems to just keep filtering out. So again, I'm oh, wrestling with that thinking, you know, there's, there's denominations that say you should not put a picture of God on your wall and look at him. You know why? I mean, you've seen that. You've, some of you probably have pictures of Jesus hanging on your wall. And, and some of the pictures, he's smiling, holding a baby. And others of them, he's hanging on a cross and he's bleeding and he's just, just in torment. He's weakened. He's, he's dying. No power. And others, he's like this glowing light holding a man up. But every picture lacks something. Every picture kind of emphasizes one piece of God's character while leaving out all the rest. And in chapter 19, what God's doing for us here is he's taking a picture and he's saying, here, hang this on your wall. Because it isn't just that I'm going to judge sin. That it's, it's uh, for a man to die once and face judgment. It's this city of Sodom was so wicked that I rained fire and brimstone out of the sky and melted down the whole place. So that's not it. Did you miss the part where I grabbed Lot when he didn't really want to go and I mercifully drug him out of the city? Do you not know that I know how to save the righteous? So he grabs Lot and he pulls him out of the city. Here's a full picture of who I am. Oh yes, I'm going to judge sin. But oh yes, I'm going to save the righteous. Oh yes, I'm infinitely merciful. I'm infinitely loving. And oh yes, I'm going to judge sin. And so in chapter 19, we get this full picture of who God is. So as I go through this, we're going to go through the story. Because this really is a story. In chapter 19, and starting in verses 1 through 3, we see these angels. So we ended chapter 18 with Abraham bartering with these three guys. And it started off by, in, in 1819, we have these uh, angels saying to, to each other, should we hold back what we're about to do? Are we not calling this man Abraham to be the father of many nations and to bless other nations? And shouldn't we tell him what we're about to do so he knows to teach his people to follow righteousness, to follow justice? That's kind of where this starts at 1819. And so they tell him, the cry against Sodom has come to us, and we're going to go see what's, what's up down there, and we're going to destroy it. 
and, and Abraham goes into bartering. But if there are 50, if there are so many, so many, if there's one and a half, <laughs> he stops at 10, right? And they said, look, we're done. And the next chapter we see two of these three are at the gates of Sodom. Now, just the way I am, the first thing I ask is, where'd the other guy go? <laughs> Who was that? And as you, you read through that, you go, wow, you know what? Jesus himself was there talking to Abraham, telling him, should we keep this from what we're about to do? That was, a, that was an incarnation. That was a theophany. No, that was an incarnation. He was there. He was talking to Abraham. And then he stayed. And these two angels went to Sodom to see what was going on. And so here's where we pick up the story. These two angels get to the gate, verses 1 through 3. They get to the gate, and this feeble little old man sees these strangers walking up, and he goes running over to them. And his money purse is clankety, 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 and he says, oh, hey, fellas. And he's looking at him all sheepishly. You ought to come with me. You ought to come over to my house tonight. Just come, and we'll feed you, and, and we'll get you some water. And these fellas, these travelers say, oh, no, we're staying in City Park tonight. And with that, you could just see Lot's face, right? This, this businessman who's, who's been doing business all day, he's just, um, no, you're not going to stay in City Park tonight. I don't think you've been to Sodom before. Maybe you should come over to my house. And he grabs these men, grabs them, and he, he ushers them to his house. Physically, he just, you're not listening. So he grabs them and he brings them to his house. And when they get there, he feeds them. They enjoy some time together. But I have to ask a second question. Lot was sitting at the city gates of Sodom. Now, we've been studying all the way through Genesis. And so we kinda, we're getting a picture of, of, of Lot. Right? Lot came over with Abraham. And there was some controversy about where to put our sheep. And you're eating my grass and you're drinking my water. And we have this conflict. And so Abraham says, okay, we're going to fix this. And they go up to this point and they say, choose. Abraham says, choose. Do you want to go east or do you want to go to the desert? Lot looks around. He says, this is a rather simple choice. Grass. It's watered. It looks like the garden of God. Garden of God. Yeah, you get it. So... He chooses to go over toward Sodom. And it says he pitches his tents near Sodom. He goes into the Jordan Valley and he pitches his tents and he has all his sheep and, and it's just a, a wonderful time. That's in chapter 13. Verse 12, you see that he pitched his tents right there. And then we have in chapter 14, not much longer, he's living in Sodom. Now we have Lot, not just in Sodom, but owning a house and sitting at the city gates. Now that has meaning. What happened at the city gates? That's where all the business, that's where the judge sat, that's where all legal transactions took place. It happened at the city gate. So Lot is now fully integrated into the Sodom city, into the culture there, fully integrated. And so that, we need that because we need that to make a full character sketch of this guy Lot. He is, he's not quite a sodomite because he's still a sojourner, but he does business, he lives there, 
He loves it. Oh, wait, no, he may not love it. Because we're told a little later something else. But he's fully integrated. And though we're not going to focus here today, there is an entire message on the enticement of worldliness here. Right? As you just watch, you watch Sodom just slowly, almost like it's gravity, just pulling Lot closer and closer until it's got him. And then what we'll see in the rest of this passage is not only does it have him, but it's kind of made him callous. It's made him weak. When it comes to trying to make certain decisions, he's just a one-legged man just kind of trying to walk around spiritually and he can't do it. And so you see that this worldliness has really weakened him. And we're not going to go there today, but, but you definitely see that in this passage. All right, so he has these guys. He brings them to their house. He feeds them. On to verses 4 through 11. Before they go to bed, they hear all this rumbling and screaming and yelling and this ruckus outside the door. And so, so Lot makes his way to the front door and he hears one of them screaming, Hey! Where are those two guys that you brought in? We saw you take them home from the city gate. Send them out here so we might know them. Let that sink in for a minute. That's a bit strange to hear at your front door. And, and so Lot, the protector that he is, he opens the door and he goes outside. He, says, he tries to convince them, guys, don't do this wicked thing. I've brought these men into my house. I'm, I'm feeding them. I'm protecting them. Don't do this wicked thing. Oh, they just, who are you to judge us? You're nobody. You're not even one of us. You're a sojourner. You came here to just kind of live off of our land, and now you're judging us? Oh, I don't think so. Don't you push your morality on me. Please don't do this. So he, he says, you know what? Oh, I have a better idea, the protector that he is. He says, hey, guys, look, I have two virgin daughters. How about I just give them to you? And you just do whatever you want. Again, character sketch. We have Lot, this guy that's kind of now integrated into this Sodom culture. He wants to protect these guys he's never met, has no idea who they are. He doesn't know their age. He doesn't know who they are. He doesn't know anything about them. But they're in his house and, you know... Take my daughters. That's just foul. Now, some people have tried to protect Lot's reputation because they're connecting this. They're saying, okay, in 2 Peter, we have Peter saying, Lot, righteous Lot. And he's called righteous Lot three times. Righteous Lot this, righteous Lot this, righteous. Righteous? He's a schemer? He's worldly, and he just offered up his daughters to a mob. Righteous? Well, that's what Peter says. That's what the Bible tells us. That he was tormented in his righteous soul living in Sodom. I look at Lot and I say, weasel. Weasel? That's really what you are. There's nothing righteous. There's nothing morally clean about this man. He can't figure out... Well, let's not go there. I wouldn't put righteous on this man as a title. Peter did. God did. One of us is wrong. So, so, but just... Sorry. Make sure you have this picture in your mind, though, of who Lot really is. Or you're not going to catch 
the aha at the end of chapter 7, 19. So he's trying to, he's trying to distract these guys. And, and oh, as, as some of the commentaries try to protect Lot's reputation, they say, you know, Lot really understood the Code of Hammurabi. And the code says that if you um, have your way with daughters who are betrothed, you're to be put to death. And so here's what Lot was really trying to do. He was trying to send them out there so these men would make advances and then he could kill them all. He's really righteous in the end, see? Okay, it, <clears throat> um, it doesn't say that. It's a good try. Um, okay, let's keep with the picture of Lot. Hey, he's a weasel. So the angels reach out the door and they snatch him and they pull him back in and then... They just, this light just blinds the whole mob. And what's the mob made out of? The mob is, it says, every man from every corner of Sodom are sitting at his front door. That's a crowded porch. They're all there. And it's important that we note that they are all there. Okay? They're all now blinded. They're just kind of groping around. Now, you would think that after doing something like this, and then all of a sudden this big, bright, and I'm blinded. It's time to go home. Okay, something went wrong here. I need to gather my thoughts because whatever I'm doing is obviously um, come to an end quickly. I need to go home and rethink my life. Oh no, but that's not what it says. It says that these men wore themselves out groping for the door. They came for need. They came because they wanted something. They wanted these men. And they are not going to stop. Even though they're now somehow supernaturally blinded, they're all pushing forward, trying to break down the door. And so as I, as I look at these people and I say, what a bunch of depraved Romans 1 people. Romans 1 tells us that, that God gave him over to, because he wouldn't worship, God gave him over to a depraved mind. Have you ever prayed, God, don't give me over to a depraved mind? Well, here it is. Here's an entire culture that's been given over to a depraved mind. And they are just hungering and scratching for that front door, even though they've been supernaturally blinded. And so as I pass judgment on these people going, oh, nasty people, I sit back and think, you know, this is just how God works oftentimes in his scripture. As you read it, those, those caverns in your soul get exposed. And you say, okay, how many times is it that I've wanted something so bad, even though I knew it was sin, I knew it was outside the will of God, but you couldn't have hit me with a freight train and stopped me from going after it. Oh, wait, you did hit me with a freight train, and I still got up and kept going. Because this thing I want, I just wanted so badly I was driven for it. And even after I realized what you're doing is sin, I still chased it. And I know there's a number of us that that have had those situations where you just, you think, wow, who's going to save me from this body of death? I do what I don't want to do and don't do what I do want to do. And I, when I go for something, I'm, I'm going for it. And so I had to kind of back off a little bit about these people scratching for the door. Because I I do that. But as much as I may want to put myself in this position, God means something very different, entirely different. This is pure depravity. This isn't struggling with sin. 
This isn't operating in the flesh and then being convicted by that and begging for forgiveness and, and then and moving closer to God as God sanctifies us. That's not this. This is pure God-hatred, lust-loving depravity. And so we can't connect directly the way a believer falls into sin when he's operating in the flesh and this. It's very different. So eventually, these men, it just kind of settles down and we move on to, to verse 12. So after the angels pull Lot back in the house, he tells them, do you have anybody else in the city? Because we're going to destroy the place. At this point, this is the first time Lot maybe put a couple things together. <laughs> These fellows are special. <laughs> they aren't just travelers. You know, regular travelers that come out of the countryside don't go and blind an entire city. Okay? And then tell me that they're going to destroy the place because of the wickedness. Right? Normal, normal travelers don't come in and say those kind of things. And so Lot right now is starting to put two and two together. And he's a little afraid. I mean, this was quite an event on his front porch. But now we have these people saying, do you have anybody else in the city? If so, get them because we're destroying the place. So what does Lot do? Lot run. He says, well, the, my family's right here. Here's my wife, my kids. They heard all this. They, they've seen what's going on. That my, my daughters are looking at me like, what was that? But they were here, right? And they heard the angels say we're going to destroy the place. And the daughters are hoping he destroys Lot with them, but whatever. So that was a joke. It doesn't say that either. Okay. And so Lot runs out to the sons-in-law and finds them and says, come on. The Lord is going to destroy this place. You have to come. Now, let's piece a couple more things together. If every man from every corner of the place were sitting at Lot's front door when this was happening... Yeah, that includes these sons-in-law. So they're still rubbing the goo out of their eyes from whatever it was that just happened. Okay? They're still sitting here kind of thinking, what was that? As Lot comes to them and says, come on, we got to get out of here. And it says, they thought he was joking. Um, I can understand... Okay, Lot, look, it's the middle of the night. I can't quite see yet. Been a long one. I don't really want to flee right now. Um, can you come back tomorrow? I don't know what you drank earlier today, but it's been a long day. So come tell me about this destroying the city thing a little bit later. That I can understand. I can understand that the people in Sodom were they were fat, they were happy, they were prosperous. Everything about them, they were eating and drinking. We see in Luke 17 where Jesus says, as it was in the day of Sodom, they were eating, they were drinking, they were making merry. It was all just good. They had all this fertile land. They didn't have any need. And so the sons-in-laws probably had a pretty good business. They had their feet kicked up as Lot came running in. They're like, why would we lose this? Destroy what? How can, what do you mean destroy? This place is perfect. This place is perfect. Everything we'd ever want is right here. What do you mean destroyed? I can understand that. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says they thought he was joking. This, this isn't a joke. God is about to rain burning sulfur 
onto this place. In Jude 7, it says that Sodom is used as an example of those who are going to burn in eternal fire and eternal punishment. That is Sodom. So this is not a joke. This is... This is like taking a city, and we're going to take this city, and we are going to make an example for thousands and thousands of years of what it means to be on the wrong side of the fence and hate God. Not, not a joke. But they thought he was joking. And so then my, my thoughts turned to, to Lot. And I think, okay, Lot goes into these guys... And tells them that we have this impending peril. How did he do it? How could could they possibly think he was joking? Think about the person who told you about Christ the first time. Those of you who are in Christ. Think about the person who told you about Christ the first time. And as I was going through this, I thought of that. I sat back and I thought, how many people can I remember that, that probably tried to tell me about Christ? And I just thought, whatever. Shut up. Yeah, 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 God's coming back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I went on about, I liked myself. I liked the way life was. I was fat. I, was hap- I wasn't as fat. I was happy. I just liked the way life was going. There's no reason to listen to this guy with the sign that says, the end is near. <laughs> the end's not near. Look around you. The economy's good. Oh, yeah, we have a little bit of nuclear proliferation maybe going on. And yeah, 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 but... Nothing is going to come to an end. Tomorrow is going to come. Just like always, I have nothing to fear. How many of you thought that way? I mean, you may not have said it that way, but I'm in no hurry. And then eventually, this, this leading got stronger and stronger until eventually you thought to yourself, huh, I am on the wrong side of the fence from God. Who was that person that convinced you? What convinced you that you were on the wrong side of the fence? And if God were to come back tomorrow, you don't want to be caught on that side of the fence. What convinced you of that? Was it you were watching television and you saw the guy with the old ratty coat with the sign that says the end is near? Or saw John 3.16 at a football game? Maybe. What did God use? Was it somebody in your life? For me, it was one of my high school teachers that would not stop. And just continually showed me what the love of Christ was and showed me what, or, or showed me that I was not on the right side of the fence. Continually, it was just like every well, three days maybe, just annoyingly, just kept coming and coming and coming. But every time I looked at her, I said, you know what, I, I really trust this lady. I know, I know 15 Christians, 14 of them, I don't trust them anyway, but I can't disregard this lady. She just... She just has this contrast in her life that there is obviously something that she's saying that's accurate. And I was convinced by her message. I didn't think she was joking. I thought she believed everything that she actually said. She was not joking. And so then I think of us as believers and I say, okay, we all have a message. You have the cure to sin. We have this message that God has given us. Jesus said, as you go along, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded. That you have been brought from darkness into light and be proclaimers of that excellency. 
So when we go to our neighbors and we say, mm, Christ has died for your sin. He has, he really has set you free. He has made a way to bring you from this side of the fence to this side of the fence. Don't miss the boat. Do they go, you don't even cut your grass. What are you talking about? Now, you, in the end, are not responsible for their salvation. But are you a joke? That's the question. Is your life a contrast that says, I have been brought out of darkness into life? It says that Christians are an aroma of death to death for those that are perishing, but life to life for those who are being saved. Is that true? When you stand in front of somebody, you're sitting drinking lattes and say, this is the gospel. Christ died to set you free and bring, give you this ability to come to this other side of the fence and be reconciled to God. Do they go, oh, that's funny, I read that one time in a little kid's book. Or do they gather their things and say, let's go. I see that you're packing ready to go. You're definitely going somewhere. And God is definitely doing something because I'm still half blinded. I'm with you. You're going to have to lead me, but I'm with you. Let's go. Is that their response? And so, for me, as I was reading this, one of the convictions that I had was, I want to pray, because I'm, I'm a, uh, what do you call, a sarcastic individual. There's one of the brothers here that one time came up and just stood right here in my face. There's only three people in this body that do that. So right there, and he said, you know what? Your sarcasm is going to make your ministry ineffective. Because nobody will ever take you seriously. And so when you tell them about this impending peril, they're going to go, that's funny too. That's funny about the, the horse with three legs and... Yeah, that's funny. You won't be taken seriously. And so as I read through this, I think, God, would you make us a body that even though we're jolly, we love life, but the message of the gospel is so serious because people are dying and God is going to judge sin and that that message is clear and nobody's just laughing at the end. God, can you make that in us? That when we say that, that's how it's received. And so that was just so convicting to me in this passage. And I wrote down here, what if Abraham would have come to those sons-in-laws and said, yo, fellas, get up. God's about to rain sulfur here. Would they have jumped up? And I, I ask that question because in my mind I'm trying to build this, this uh, character sketch of Lot. Who is this man? Peter calls him righteous. I call him a weasel. One of us is wrong. All right, so let's move on to verse 15. Verse 15. So morning is dawning in Sodom. The sun's starting to come up. And it says that the angels roused. They woke Lot. Wait, did you catch that? Lot, do you have anybody else in the city? Go get them because I'm going to destroy the city, O righteous one who believes God. And then Lot did what? Yeah, he went to sleep. Holmes went to sleep. That's what he did. And in the morning, they woke him up and said, um, um, Lot, <laughs> uh, you need to hurry because 
you're going to be swept away in the punishment of this city. Get up, get your family, and get out. And so Lot, of course, being a righteous man, said, wait just a minute. You know, I got a couple business transactions going on today, and I got a couple things I really got to get done. And it says he lingered. He lingered. Earlier when I said worldliness has this effect on the body, it has an effect on the spirit. You, you indulge in worldliness, and what happens is you get weakened. When you hear God say, move, you say, well, gone. that's hard. Just a little shaving off the income taxes here, and I'll make it. <laughs> Just a little bit. Right? It, worldliness weakens your ability to stand on God's word. And that's exactly what we see going on here. He just lingered. He, he really likes being there. And so what did the angels do? Grab this picture. The angels grab him by the arms. They grab his wife. They grab his girls, his daughters, and they mercifully lead them out of the city and drop them off and said, go. Did he want to go? It says he lingered. He said he, he, wasn't, he didn't want to go. God grabbed him. These angels grabbed him and took him out of the city. This is such a... Mar- I'm getting excited here. Hold on. Whew. This is such an exciting view of salvation. Okay? Think of yourself. Those of you who said, Oh, yes, I'm holy. I think I'm going to come to Christ today. <laughs> the Bible says, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Because there's a place where you just say, God, I got nothing. Who's going to save me from this body of death? I have finally come to the realization that I have nothing to offer you. And God says, yes, yes, salvation, yes. And he grabs us by the arm and he moves. Those that he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. God grabbed us. This is salvation. And he moved you. He did all of it. When we see the Abrahamic covenant a couple chapters earlier where God said, I'm going to walk through this because you're not capable of keeping this covenant. I am going to do it. And salvation is exactly like that. We linger. We like the world. We like our sin. The Bible says that the light came into the world, but men couldn't say they didn't want it. And to think that we wanted it would be lying. We may have had a little, wow, light, that's kind of neat, huh? But, but nobody desires God. Nobody chases after God. God has to do a work in you. And so we see this. We lingered in the world and God saved us. That is sweet. He saved us from impending judgment that was going to fall on that city. Now some of you already are thinking, okay, how come he didn't save the other ones? What about them? What's the difference? Lot's a weasel. Tried offering his daughters. He's selfish. He's self-serving. He's a dork. I mean, come on. Why save him? There's none of us that are going to be able to sit in the throne room of God and say, God, I was better than Lot. You saved him. You could save me from impending judgment. I'm sure we can all come up with a list of our own that take us out of the we beat Lot category. So why? Why did he save Lot? Why did he drag out the daughters, drag out the wife? Why did he do that? What's different? I'm just going to let that, I'm going to put a pin in it. 
Leave that question just right there for a minute. Because it obviously wasn't moral perfection. But what was it? When the angels brought Lot outside, dropped him off in the city, they said, go, head to the hills. And so quickly, Lot puts on his Nikes and starts booking it because he's going to run 26 miles. Actually, Lot didn't do that. He said, I can't go that far. I'm fat. I can't make it. Can you, like, let me just go to this little city where there's, like, some parties going on? And it's a little one. That's what he says. It's a little one. This little city. Can you just let me go to that little one? It can't be that bad. I mean, but at least they have a McDonald's. Let me go there. The angel says, okay. Okay, you can go there. But hurry up, because I can't do anything until you're safe. Until you, Lot, are safe and have arrived, judgment is not going to fall. And so they scurry off. He says, but be sure, the angels tell him, be sure, don't look back. Don't stop somewhere in the valley. You go and you get there. And for the first time, Lot took this word from God and did it. And he ran. And they got to Zoar, the city. And when that happened, judgment fell on the city. What was different between Lot and those that were in the city? Or Lot and his wife, who's still in the middle of the valley going, do I go, do I? And couldn't leave, right? Judgment didn't fall until Lot was in the city. And it says his wife was still way back. She didn't make it. Why? What's the difference between Lot and those that were judged? Wasn't moral perfection. We have that sketch in our mind right here. God in his infinite mercy took Lot and saved him, rescued him. And this is what Second Peter tells us. It tells us that God knows how to save the righteous. Who are righteous then? That's the question. When we look at what Lot did, Lot did believe God. That's it. We're done. The difference between Lot and those in Sodom is that Lot believed God. Just like Abraham, we have Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He didn't put anything in this. Here's how it works. Believing God at his word, God takes our unrighteousness, all that garbage that this character sketch, he takes the filth who, who Lot really is, and he takes all that unrighteous filth and he puts it on Christ. All of it. Christ takes all of that. That's what he was sacrificed for. Every bit of that unrighteous stuff about sacrificing his daughters and being self-serving and all of these things that Lot really was. And if we look in the mirror who we really are, Christ took all of that on himself and he said, you're forgiven. It's finished. 
And the righteousness of Christ that's perfect is imputed to you as you believe God and his word. That's the gospel. That's how we're reconciled to God. That's how you escape or are rescued from the impending peril of judgment. You believe God and his word. When he tells you that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but everlasting life. That's what he means. He means that to escape that peril, you believe him at his word. And because of that, you're counted as righteousness. His righteousness is imputed to you. And when you're standing like like Valerie Yarborough, standing in front of the throne of God, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. He doesn't say weasel. He doesn't say that. You know you're a weasel. But at the same time, you can stand up and in confidence come before the throne of God because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to you. Amen. That's the gospel. We can stand in front of God that way. That's the difference between Lot, the weasel, and the rest of the weasels that got punished. Was that Lot believed God at his word. That's the only difference. Now, some of us perfectionists are not real happy about that. Because I've been working real hard to be righteous. And I'm very unhappy with the fact that Lot gets to get in and he was a weasel. Right? Especially those of you who are older siblings. <clears throat> we just, you just aren't good with, with the fact that, you know, that younger guy can get in there. And The only difference between Lot and those that were punished is that Lot believed God. Now watch this for a minute. His wife was brought out with him. It says God in his mercy took his wife, took Lot, took his daughters, and led them out of the city. They're standing out in front of the city now, and they're told, go. As soon as you get there, judgment's coming. And they all take off running. The wife can't do it. She gets there. Her love for what was back there would not allow her to continue. She's just drawn back to Sodom. But wait a minute. Did she not just get mercy? Didn't it say, in the Lord's mercy, they drew her out of the city. Out of the city by itself wasn't salvation. It was getting to Zoar. That was the place where judgment then fell. In this middle place, okay, here's the illustration right here, ready? Coming to church, it's not the safe place. Having mom and dad that believe in Jesus, junior hires, having a mom and dad that believe in Jesus, mm, that's not the safe place. Having your morning devotionals, that's not the safe place. Believing God at his word is what it is when you make it to Zoar. In Hebrews 6, we have this awkward passage that says, if you've tasted the Holy Spirit and yet turn away, what's left to save you? And the answer is nothing. You can't crucify Christ again. That's Hebrews 6. You can... You can be mercifully led out of the city. You can be mercifully brought here by a friend or mercifully brought into their house and explain the gospel. You can, you can be around all these godly people where you just taste the Holy Spirit. You're like, oh, that is succulent. I, I love seeing God work. But never make the trip to Zohar because you just can't do it. That's the warning to us here. Right? That 
right now, you have to ask yourself, am I, in, am I here? Do I trust God at his word? Or am I in this kind of funky place in the middle where, where I, I don't really trust God at his word? And that's something for you to think of. And then we end with the other bookend in 1929. It says, in 1920, on the end of the chapter, we started with Abraham talking with these three guys and them explaining to Abraham what he was going to do. And then here in 1929, it says, Abraham arose early, and he ran over to the edge, and he looked down to Sodom. Why did he do that? He did it because God told him the day before, this is what's going to happen, and Abraham believed God at his word. And so he, woke, he rose early in the morning, and he ran over there, and he looked over the edge, and he went, oh guess there weren't 10. And that ends it. And it says that that happened, but God remembered Abraham and rescued his nephew Lot. If 2 Peter wasn't given to us, if Peter didn't say that Lot was righteous three times and that his righteous soul was tormented living in Sodom, I would say that God rescued Lot simply because he loved Abraham. That's what I would say. But because God fills that picture in, in the New Testament for us, and says, maybe he was a weasel, but he believed me at my word, and that made him righteous. And it says, God knows how to save the righteous while punishing the wicked. That's a full picture of God. Infinitely merciful and infinitely just.